is the big ponder. Do <laughs> 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 you know Ollie Harrington? <laughs> It is surprising how little Ollie Harrington is talked about here in the States. <laughs> when I discovered Harrington, uh, I was really blown away by how such brilliant cartoonists could be kind of relatively unknown. <laughs> I, I wish that more people knew about Ollie Harrington. <laughs> he wanted the world to see what was going on. He wanted the world to see African-Americans as the people they were and are. <laughs> He's in a world that is full of incredible black artists and intellectuals, and they set up shop in Paris. <laughs> Ollie was extremely talented. He should be known. He's one of the greatest cartoonists that ever lived. I would say he brought his A-game to everything he did. And so you see his best in all of his work. <laughs> you know, so many things that we talk about, about the 20th century, he was right there. To have traveled to East Berlin for work and then to have the wall go up while he was there is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> he had this very characteristic style. Nobody was drawing cartoons, at least in the GDR, nobody was doing it like he did. After the fall of the wall, he practically didn't work anymore. One would think you are freer to work and not so much restricted, but it doesn't work like that, only in theory. <laughs> you know, it's laugh, 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 punch in the face. And that's what cartoons do. I've always lived by this golden rule. Whatever happens, don't blow your cool. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Ollie Harrington, he's an American master. His cartoons dealt with issues that Black folks deal with every day. So, yeah, he, he was quite well known until he wasn't. I just think that it's a shame, though, because if anybody deserves an important, significant, close look, he does. My name is Rick Powell. I'm a professor of art history and African-American studies at Duke University. We refuse to teach what has happened in our past. And so we're destined to repeat the same thing over and over again. And I think that's really America's Achilles heel. My name is Keith Knight, gentleman cartoonist. I'm the creator of three comic strips, and I'm also co-creator of the streaming series Woke. What happens is you just realize that the stuff that you're writing about now, he was writing about almost 100 years ago. He was born in 1912. In uh, Valhalla, uh, New York, which is in Westchester. He is the product of an African-American father from North Carolina and a Hungarian Jewish mother. At the age of nine, they moved down to um, the Bronx. 
And so he's a mixed race kid growing up in the Bronx at the beginning of the 20th century. He's in elementary school and it's a mixed race school. In my sixth grade class, there were only two Afro-American kids, me and a strapping giant, Prince Anders. One bright morning, our teacher, who was a Miss McCoy, ordered us, the perpetual grinning prince and me, to the front of the class. Pausing for several seconds, she pointed her cheaply jeweled finger with what I think she considered a very dramatic gesture at the trash basket and said, never, never forget, these two belong in that there trash basket. The white kids giggled rather hesitantly at first, and they fell out in peals of laughter. For those kids, it must have been their first trip on the racist drug. I stumbled backward in shocked resentment, aware of the growing pain in my chest. Prince only grinned, but I realized that his eyes had noticeably narrowed. It was several days before I managed to pull myself together. Gradually, I felt an urge to draw little caricatures of this Miss McCoy in the margins of my notebook. Miss McCoy being rammed into our local butcher shop meat grinding apparatus. Miss McCoy being run over by the speeding engines on the nearby New York Central Railroad tracks. Well, one drawing which I worked on all through arithmetic class really grabbed me. It showed Miss McCoy disappearing between the jaws of a particularly mean tiger. I began to realize that each drawing lifted my spirits a little bit. And so I thought, I can never let Miss McCoy see this, but I began to dream of becoming a cartoonist. And these were the beginnings of his coming into being a really, really fine cartoonist. So when he went to DeWitt Clinton High School, which was no slouch high school, Romare Bearden, the artist, and James Baldwin, the writer, both graduated from DeWitt Clinton. So he got out of there in the teeth of depression in 1929. He moved to the YMCA in Harlem. On 135th Street. And as a young man, he's going to the barber shops and hanging out with other African-Americans. And he's listening to jokes. And he's listening to, to all the things that, that people say in a kind of a popular, jocular way. And he's taking all of this in. And fortunately, he's able to channel this through his connections to media, through newspapers, Black newspapers. That were there because of, basically because of outright racism. My name's Warren Bernard. I am a comics historian. I was a longtime cataloger at the Library of Congress. I've known about Ollie Harrington for a number of years. And it was through this first book called Bootsy that came out in 1957, I believe. Now, I thought it was eye-opening because I wasn't aware that this kind of work was being done for, A, the black newspapers, and then, B, I knew nothing at that point that there even were black newspapers and what the black newspaper meant to the African-American community during basically the entire 20th century. 
if you go and read histories of political cartooning in the United States, you don't see anything about the black newspapers. The black newspapers were very interesting because they were basically self-contained financial marketing, distribution, and sales units. They had to build their own printing plants. They had to have their own editors. They had their own writers. And of course, they had their own cartoonists. And he works early on in his career with um, some really, really important publications like the Amsterdam News, which gives him an opportunity to do cartoons. And his cartoons are about Harlem. I met the most fantastic people who took a great paternal interest in me because there were great dangers too, which I wasn't prepared for. I'd never had a drink on Brook Avenue. And so it was someone like Langston Hughes who said, well, look, man, you don't need this stuff if you don't want it. Drink ginger ale. And it took me years before I began to pour a little gin into the ginger ale. But Langston Hughes and I, and he was a fatherly figure to me, he was quite a good deal older, but such a wonderful and protective man. And through him, he explained some of his ideas, why people in the ghetto laugh so much, why Prince Anderson in that school, for instance, grinned automatically all the time. He said, well, it's laughing to keep from crying, you know, and that's what it is, still is. But it creates a fantastic form of humor, almost mislike humor, and a sustaining humor. And I love it and have continued to love it. And I think it was 1935, he started working with the Pittsburgh Courier and came up with a single panel strip, Dark Laughter. Just think about the title, Dark Laughter. In other words, I'm dealing with this world of Harlem, this world of brown and beige and black people, but I'm also looking at the humorous side of it. But lying within the humor is a political statement, is a social statement. He also wanted the world to see that African-Americans did have heart. They did have humor. They had lives. And they just wanted to live, that we want to live in a society like everyone else, that we want to be able to have lives where we're happy, that we're thriving, we're successful, that it's not just misery, that we do have fun and that we can smile and laugh in a world that seems to be constantly confronting all of us with darkness and peril. I'm Dr. Kay Clopton. I am the outgoing Mary P. Key resident at the Billy Island Cartoon Library and Museum. I'm also co-curator on the Dark Laughter Revisited the Life and Times of Ollie Harrington exhibit. 1936, 37, somewhere in there, he went to the Yale School of Fine Arts. So he graduates from Yale, he moves to Harlem, and he becomes a part of a really active scene in Harlem in the late 30s, early 1940s. Me and my friends always used to say, like, you know, White people are always talking about how they wish they could go back in time. <laughs> and as Black people were like, nah, you know, I'll go as far back in time as maybe 1989 or something. <laughs> but the older I get, the more I sit there and go, man, I would have loved to have been around folks in the Harlem Renaissance and what that must have been like to be at salons with all these amazing poets and writers and intellectuals and artists and stuff. 
so many people get mentioned in that period of time. But yeah, Ollie Harry was there. And you just don't hear much about a cartoonist being there. Shortly after that, he gets an opportunity to be a war correspondent. And in my mind, this is a really, really important moment because he decides to connect with the segregated troops. So he's hanging out with young black men like him and realizes how powerful and poetic and ironic that situation is of black soldiers putting their lives on the line and not being able to realize those full democracies back home. Going through the war, he does a comic strip So, you know, Jive Gray and his team of fighter pilots shooting down a bunch of Nazi planes that somehow find their way over the Deep South. Jive Gray gets shot down and gets found by a typical Southern farmer who basically says, well, it looks like we've got a rope ready for you. There's going to be a good lynching tonight. I was finally moved to the 11th floor of this YMCA where the so-called veterans lived. One of those people was a man who used to come and sit in my room and talk about science. His name was Charlie Drew. He was a doctor in one of the foundations in New York City. He had been trained at McGill University in Canada, and he was obsessed with the, the wonders of nature. He was doing experimental work on developing blood plasma from whole blood. And he'd made fantastic advances, and apparently Harlem didn't know about them, and apparently a lot of people in the States didn't know about them. But Winston Churchill knew about them. And Winston Churchill sent him, sent the embassy instructions, and they telephoned the 11th floor of the Harlem YMC and asked Charlie Drew, to come to the embassy. These are stories you will never have heard. Charlie Drew went there, and he was received by the ambassador. I must admit that in the beginning, Charlie was very skeptical about it. I was a great uh, practical joker, and Charlie came into my room and said, God damn it, Ollie, I know you sent that telegram. (laughs) I said, Charlie, I I really have nothing to do with that. But there's only one way to prove it. Call the British Embassy. And he gave me a skeptical look, but he called the British Embassy. And they said, Dr. Drew, please come. We're waiting for you. Charlie Drew went there, and they told him, we have a great problem. We're trying to save the people from Dunkirk with with your method. Perhaps we can. Charlie was on a plane for London. Later, Charlie was called the Angel of Dunkirk. After a while, he returned to the United States. His draft board told him that he should go to the Navy recruiting officer. He was sent to Washington, where he was interviewed. They knew the name. They received him with what they had hoped would be open arms. When he appeared, they said, Dr. Drew, we're afraid that a terrible error has been made. Go back to your draft board. Charlie went back to the draft board, so embittered 
he swore he would never speak to another white person. So it's during this time period that he becomes involved with the NAACP as their kind of public relations communications person. And he ends up getting involved with all of these incredible cases of black vets who are attacked and beaten in the South for wearing their uniforms, for asserting their rights as American citizens. And he teams up with Orson Welles, of all people. Orson Welles has a radio program, I think, on ABC. Good morning, this is Orson Welles speaking. And there's one particular case that's really, really horrible about a black man, Isaac Woodard, whose eyes are gouged out by the police in South Carolina. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when I left off worrying about this broadcast long enough for coffee at an all-night restaurant, I found myself joined at the table by a stranger. A nice, soft-spoken, well-meaning, well-mannered stranger he was. He told me a joke. He thinks it's a joke. I'm going to repeat it, but not for your amusement. I earnestly hope that nobody listening will laugh. And Ollie Harrington provides all of the information to Orson Welles. And nobody's really talked about this at great length, but I really believe that Orson Welles picked up on the theatricality of Ollie Harrington. Orson Welles picked up on the drama of Ollie Harrington. And so when he's doing those reports on ABC News about Isaac Woodard, he's really channeling the stories and the narratives that Ollie Harrington gave him. And there was, I think it was a New York Herald Tribune had a symposium on social justice. I think there was an incident down in North Carolina where a town got burned. And he basically took the United States Attorney General to task on why, you know, you could find all these spies during World War II. Why couldn't you find anybody who did this? And frankly, his politics and his activism scares, I think, a lot of the people of the NAACP. And they say, you know, you're too tough. You're too critical. You know, you're not towing the line enough. And all his involvement in leftist politics during this time period, he saw the writing on the wall. He knew that, that this was a moment of the Red Scare. He knew that because of his activism, he was going to be linked to the Communist Party. And you need to have some context for this. So back in the 20s and 30s, after World War I, there was this big overlap between communist feelings and the quest for racial equality. It wasn't unusual in intellectual circles for people to be attracted to the Communist Party, whether they were black or they were white. We have a copy of his FBI file that they kept on him. There's actually a lot of pages that are blacked out. Um, you get a lot of pages that tell you that a trusted informant told them that he was a communist, but that would be the only part you could read and then the rest of it's blacked out. One of my favorite pages is actually that we have no idea what happened. We know that they did an investigation. It was two pages of just everything's blacked out. And the last line, the only thing you can read is, upon further inspection, there is nothing to this and we have closed the case. Somebody tipped Ali off. If he values his health, he better see about getting away from the United States. So miraculously in the early 50s, he applies for an opportunity to go abroad, and he leaves the United States and moves to Paris. James Baldwin and Chester Himes, and they just talked about Ollie Harrington being like 
the ladies' man of their whole you know, community and was a great storyteller. You know, people focus on Richard Wright, but the star of the party, and it was an ongoing party for several years in these cafes, was not Richard Wright. It was Ollie Harrington, because Ollie Harrington was the raconteur. Ollie Harrington was the jokester. He, he worked in Paris. He was approached by um, the, uh, the Daily Worker, the, the United States Daily Worker, what little there was left, and he started to work for them from Paris. But all things come to an end because at the end of the 1950s, Richard Wright surprisingly dies. And it's kind of a mysterious death. No one really knows what happened. He was talking and fine, it seemed to be, one day, and within a week, he was dead. Harrington was convinced that Wright was killed by a CIA plot. And oh, by the way, back then, at that time, given the circumstances, one could go ahead and say stuff like that and not be considered totally Looney Tunes. When Richard Wright dies, Ali Harrington goes to Berlin for a meeting to talk about doing illustrations for some American books, and the Iron Curtain goes up. And so um, he makes a new life for himself there. Hello, this is Victor Grossman. I became a friend of Oliver Harrington because he asked if I were interested in working with him at Radio Berlin International. We met in a restaurant. It was 63. And he's working for a publication that I guess is still in existence in Berlin, Eulenspiegel. Eulenspiegel was a weekly satirical magazine in East Germany in the GDR. More or less everybody knew it. Not everybody got it because, you know, the GDR was an economy where lots of things were lacking and also paper. So I think they could have sold twice as many copies as they did had they had the paper to print enough. So quite often his cartoons were on the front page or on the back page, so full page size. And the people who read the magazine, not necessarily every week, but now and then, would know him. His cartoons were in Eulenspiegel, and it was always against American domination in Latin America and such subjects. Or also subjects like racism in the, in the USA. He did cartoons here, you know, but he only got occupied in international themes. He didn't tackle any GDR problems or interior politics. I guess he was careful. He did not like everything that was going on in the GDR, of course. Nobody did, or almost nobody did. Uh, my name is Wolfgang König. I'm a journalist. Ollie lived around the corner from me. And one time I took my little son. He was about the same age as Ollie's son, although Ollie was 30 years older than I was. And so uh, we became friends somehow. So we met from time to time. He made me aware of a person that became one of my favorite jazz singers because he had an album of this guy and I could borrow it and tape it. It was an album by Oscar Brown Jr. Through Ollie, I got to know about him. He sent a weekly caricature to the Daily World. Because he was an American citizen, he could travel easily to West Berlin. And he mailed them from West Berlin because that went much quicker. He was kind of happy that he had a nice new Renault. And he told this story. He was over in West Berlin and he got stopped at a red light rather suddenly. The car in back of him couldn't stop quite so suddenly and crashed into him. Not seriously, but enough that it was damaged. So he got out and the driver got out and he expected to exchange information about their insurance, etc. 
the other guy wouldn't give his information. By then, sort of a little crowd had gathered. It became a little unpleasant, so this guy gave him a, a telephone number to call, and he said he'll clear it up. Well, I guess it was several weeks later that Ali was in West Berlin again and, and called and made an appointment and met him at some little office, and they arranged the pay or whatever it was. What was the meaning of this? The guy was from the CIA. He was being followed, you know. He was followed by Americans in West Berlin. I guess he was followed by somebody from here. You're being watched from each side. And in Germany, he was the go-to person, like the black ambassador in Berlin. My husband liked to cook. He was a very good cook. We always had many people at our place. He could cook Chinese or Italian or American, whatever. Despite that relatively close society, there came always people passing through Berlin. So he lives a, a rather extraordinary life in East Berlin. But then things changed dramatically at the end of the 1980s with the collapse, so to speak, of the wall. After the fall of the wall, you know, he practically didn't work anymore, except those months in the United States. I tried to meet every artist that I collected. I tried to. And I even invited him to Detroit. And most of them came and spent a week or more at my home. I'm Walter O. Evans. I'm a collector of African-American art, literature, books, manuscripts, documents, music, etc. And I've been retired now from the practice of medicine for 20 years. When he came to visit Detroit, he had not been here in a very, very, very long time. And he was not familiar with the changes that had occurred in the U.S. Now, we still have a long ways to go. I mean, you look at the news every day now and you see police brutality. In fact, I myself have been on the wrong end of police brutality on several occasions. And I don't know how many times I've had to spread eagle against police cars for doing nothing, just being black, a black male at my age. And I'll be 80 years old in another uh, year and a few months. But we had made major advances, and he just was not aware of some of those advances. And I think he was still a little bit overly suspicious of the uh, justice system, which, which you need to be, but not as much as it was when he left the U.S. When you're older, you don't have the time. That's the way it is. After the end of the GDR, we somehow lost touch. And then also he died not too many years after that. He passed away in 95. He just lived an amazing life. And that's all you can ask for. As harrowing as it can be, that's all you want to do. And he passed away. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in 2019, the Billy Ireland got a whole bunch of Harrington's papers and originals and other archives from his widow. I'm Jenny Robb, and I'm the head curator of the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library Museum. So we were really excited about exhibiting that, but we didn't have quite enough for an entire exhibition. We ended up uh, partnering with Dr. Walter Evans, who is the largest collector of Ollie Harrington's work. When I started collecting, you couldn't go into a museum in this country and find anything by an African-American note. I mean, even if they had it, they didn't display it. I started collecting art because I wanted my daughters to see artwork by African-Americans, and they could not go to public museums in this country and see it. Ethnic memorials. Can we afford them? 
Do we know that they've got to go or else? I think so. And I hope all of you think so. And this is the only reason I continue to do my cartoons. Well, I'm getting a little bit shaky and my hands aren't quite in it now, but I'm going to get back to them. I want to turn out those old same cartoons. And it's for me and for you. been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible. <laughs>